one area that's been a particular area of focus has been related to immunotherapy. Yeah. So immunotherapy is is you know by almost any standard a wonder drug for for different forms of cancer in that these are used in really difficult to, often used in really difficult to treat cancers. They're often very tragic cases. For instance, they might be young people with very advanced melanoma that spread to different organ systems, but they use them for a wide variety of cancers and they're difficult to treat. And these immunotherapies, they they when they work, they um they they can work really spectacularly for cancers that we had no treatment for before. We didn't even know the gut microbiome was relevant for anything 10 or 20 years ago. And not only have we got here, you know, a a drug that has come from nowhere that is brilliant for some people, has won the Nobel Prize, etc. But but now we've discovered that the gut microbiome is entirely irrelevant is, is entirely relevant yeah. to how this drug functions or not. You know, interested parties will be aware of the many steps for getting to that New England paper. You know, the pre you know the diligent cell work, the mouse work that's gone on for generations, the right. steps of funding, the presentation of conferences. And here, this was like a sledgehammer. You know, people might have had <laughs> some awareness of the gut microbiome and manipulation. And then out of the blue, like the carpet is pulled by right. and, you know, a, a paper being published of you do what to people. Yeah. And then and then not only did you do this to people, but it worked as well. Yeah. The first patient we treated was someone who, um, j you know, just to just describe them broadly, was someone who'd basically been in and out of hospital, an elderly patient who'd been in and out of hospital for, for six months. And we had treated them. The patient had not been totally con convinced at first, taking a little bit of time to consider uh, whether FMT was right for them, and I think we, you know, we kind of went on that journey with them of explaining right. what we what what we thought were the pros and cons, and, and recognizing that it was it was new. And then gradually, from about three days onwards, the the patient's diarrhea started to resolve. So, of course, we didn't really know: is this just kind of a bit of vancomycin hangover from what the patients had before? Okay. Is it just they've got lucky at that point in time or whatever? You know. But then gradually, you know, every hour turning into day that went by, wow. where the patient was still all right. Um, uh, you know, it became kind of more and more likely that, yeah, this might have actually worked. The following is a conversation with Dr. Benjamin Mullish, an NIHR academic clinical lecturer at Imperial College London, an honorary registrar in gastroenterology and hepatology at St. Mary's Hospital in London. Dr. Mullish is widely accepted as being a pioneer of the application of faecal microbiota transplantation also known as intestinal microbiota transfer to patient populations. Dr. Mullish was one of the co-first authors of the BSG HIS consensus guideline publications, the application of FMT to treat disease. Dr. Mullish is a widely experienced pioneer in the field of FMT IMT, having been involved in multiple randomized controlled studies as well as the application of FMT on a named patient basis. This is Inside Matters. My name is Dr. James McElroy. I hope you enjoy it. Why don't we start with you talking about your FMT experience? Yeah. How did you get started with FMT? Okay, so uh, I think it was when I was, because my background's obviously clinical, working in uh, you know, so GI disease, gastroenterology and liver disease. And it was about 10 years ago when I started getting into research, had the opportunity to take some time out of clinical training. And there were kind of a couple of things that were dovetailing at the same time. The first uh, aspect of it was a sort of explosion of interest in uh, the contribution of the gut microbiome to 
to disease. That was that was that was kind of becoming a really hot topic at the time. And the the other aspect of that was this sort of uh gradual but then you know precipitous increase in interest about fecal transplant so when i i think it was back in january 2013 that the first randomized you know new yeah. trial was was published and that was kind of about the time that i was around and getting engaged with research and i think it was those two things kind of dovetailing together firstly the you know this this huge explosion in in, in awareness uh the sort of breakthrough points about about microbiome science and secondly this interest in um in, uh, in in FMT, so the idea of them being a sort of almost new branch of science, and the fact that uh, you could actually do something therapeutic at the same time was 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 yeah. pretty attractive. And was this the Van Nude? Yeah, paper, precisely. Yeah. yeah, precisely. I mean, you don't you don't really hear in. I mean, okay, everyone would accept that was a small a, a small randomized you know small trial, albeit randomized. But you don't often hear things in you know trials in medicine that are stopped by an ethics board right. and interim analysis because right. you know, because people in a, a treatment arm are doing so much better than um, than people being given standard of care. You so, know. so what happened in the Van Nude? I think the title is duodenal infusion of donor feces for recurrent. C. difficile or something yeah, like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember reading it as a medical student and was like, "What? Yes, yeah. What? They've, they've, done, they've, they've done what? They've instilled donor feces into the small yeah, bowel. I mean, I think I think what's unusual for this is normally if there's any sort of intervention in medicine, uh, you know, interested parties will be aware of the many steps for getting to that New England paper. You know, the pre, you know, the diligent cell work, the mouse work that's gone on for generations, the right. steps of funding, the presentation of conferences. And here, this was like a sledgehammer. You know, people might have had <laughs> some awareness of the gut microbiome and manipulation. And yeah. then out of the blue, like the carpet is pulled by right. and, you know, a, a paper being published of you do what to people? Yeah. And then and then not only did you do this to people, but it worked as well. Yeah. Um, and New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah, precisely. That's, that's big, isn't it? Yeah, precisely. And... Uh, uh, and it was a simple intervention. You know, this isn't this isn't you know right. people having really complex you know interventions. This was really basic. I think the donors in this were people who had what by you know today's standards would seem pretty primitive screening, yeah. being given fresh stool. I think some of these were, were volunteers in the hospital. You know, giving out sweets and newspapers to patients and visitors. Um, you know, we wouldn't do that anymore. No, would this we? wasn't yeah. like you know this wasn't like super sophistication. This was really basic and exactly as you say by today's standards in terms of you know safety quality of preparation it, it, you know it, it looks it looks you know pretty 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 basic yeah. but you know it was it was a real sledgehammer Let, let's let's make a note we won't do it right now but we'll, we'll try and come back to the evolution of all elements associated with preparing the formulation that's used within yeah imt fmt because it's it has come on honestly so much hasn't yeah. it and, yeah and and i know that yourself and and Prof Marchese's team in Imperial are really big on also figuring out how this works. So yeah. we should talk about that too. But going back to 2012, then you, you read it and you thought, whoa. And what happened next? Yeah, so I mean, when I started to to try and get a, um, a an FMT, IMT service sort of uh, up in the hospital I work, there were, uh, uh, you know, some predictable barriers. I mean, kind of within the, you know, I work in a centre where there's a very big di active digestive disease research community. Those guys board in pretty quickly. But having to go through the um, the kind of levels of, um, uh, you know, regulation within the trust and beyond to try and get a programme set up was pretty formidable. I mean, firstly, from a regulatory standpoint, there was the time point where, 
whereby some people, you'll certainly remember, James, where people were talking about, you know, this is fall under the remit of the EU tissue and cells right. remit or HDA or right. or MHR, you know, or MHRA. There was still some head scratching about that. We had that conference, didn't we, in 2014? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. that's right. So that, that there was some head scratching about that. Even, you know, what the approach was to, you know, kind of implement this in in, in, in our trust. To give a basic example, you, you know, after some real backwards and forwards, I was told this landed with the Drugs and Therapeutics Committee. And the Drugs and Therapeutics Committee said, no, this would fall within a sort of research remit capacity. You know, everyone was kind of um, unsure about, you know, whose remit was this? Because, you know, there was no kind of parallel to this. I mean, there's certainly things that are used in clinical practice that are hard to classify, you know, using leeches on vascular patients and those sort of things. It wasn't unprecedented that there right. are things that are kind of effective, but you don't know whose remit they lie. So but this was this on, was pretty... This on was that pretty, note, you've just reminded me of something quite funny. I, um, I've done some work with a lady who works in regulatory affairs, and she she helps us with our endeavors and and what we're doing and, and what you're doing is obviously very different to your traditional medicine you're not trying to preserve sterility uh <laughs> you yeah. know you're, you're trying to maintain the viability of the microorganism yeah, sure. so she always talks about it being unusual but she says that she has worked on something more unusual which is someone that was trying to grow worms in a gmp setting right Right. Because there's some evidence to suggest that if there's worms or helmets in your gut, there's less autoimmunity. Right, okay. Yeah. And apparently it started with this guy in a shed and, and he was distributing it and then the regulator came in and were like... Look, <laughs> can't do this anymore yeah, I, think, I think i think well, yeah we, so, we we tested the coronaries of our, our, our plenty of committees as it was i don't know what that would that, that was sort of. so gmp worms yeah GMP uh, worms. Th th there we go so going back so so there was red tape but had were you convinced at that point that just based on that study that this was going to be big no i i, I don't think it was at that stage i mean it's, it's pretty familiar to anyone with a clinical background that the real world experience of certain interventions can be pretty different to um to um to, to, to how they're presented in papers uh that you know all papers have have pretty stringent inclusion and exclusion criteria you, you, know, you often don't see the original data etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think like everyone while i was you know pretty taken by 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 the claims they almost seemed too good to be true and it almost seemed too abstract to actually work so you know i, I was kind of unless i'd seen it with my own eyes it was it, it was you know I, I wasn't convinced yet when was the first time you saw fmt with your own eyes yeah so so i think it was the, the first patient we treated was someone who um you know just to just to describe them broadly was someone who'd basically been in and out of hospital an elderly patient who'd been in and out of hospital for for six months family reported to become sort of profoundly debilitated in terms of uh weight loss appetite interaction mood um had other comorbidities that had worsened had lived independently but wasn't able to um probably weren't going to be able to live in their own home anymore due to their kind of debilitation um and we had treated them. The patient had not been totally con convinced at first, taken a little bit of time to consider uh, whether FMT was right for them. And I think we, you know, we kind of went on that journey with them of explaining right. what we what what we thought were the pros and cons and, and recognizing that it was it was new. Um, but treated the patient at first first few days, we didn't see anything, you know, any kind of real profound benefit. And then gradually, from about 
three days onwards, the, the patient's diarrhea started to resolve. So, of course, we didn't really know, is this just kind of a bit of vancomycin hangover from what the patients had before? Okay. Is it just they've got lucky at that point in time or whatever, you know? But then gradually, you know, every hour turning into day that went by wow. where the patient was still all right, um, uh, it, you know, it became kind of more and more <laughs> likely that, yeah, this might have actually worked. A kind of further interesting aspect to that is the patient then then did go home. They managed to go back to their own home with 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 a sort of package of care in place, and then and then and then bizarrely reattended uh, A and E about two weeks later because of constipation. Uh, actually, really? Yeah, they came back to came back to A and E because they were pretty uncomfortable. One extreme to another. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, that is something that we've we, we've noticed with with a few of our early patients and, and subsequent patients as well. So, uh, you know, that was that was that was real kind of you know draw on the floor, you know, kind of moment. Yeah, fascinating. So. For this first patient, were you like, you know, doing your shift, see them in the morning, see them in the afternoon, next day you come back, you're like, whoa, they're looking much better. Was that was kind of what was going on? Or? I don't think, I, I mean, I don't think there was any kind of overall in the first few days, you know, some kind of like profound, miraculous moment. But then there was suddenly, you know, almost insidiously some sort of inflection point where the kind of... I, I don't know that maybe there was it was just like the light had gone on or something had changed you just kind of got a you know a sense that something had changed it was maybe in something in the patient's interaction with you or that the it was kind of a global right. thing like the, the you know the patient's general interaction with you their blood tests had got much better inflammatory markers dropped that day they appetite was better they were on the phone to family you know wow. there was just seemed to be wow. something that had happened you know can i can i clearly say with one person you know that was that right. was definitely you know right. all fmt related no i can't but they, they you know it was just that kind of sense and i think it was kind of a it that was enough to to kind of if not fully win me over you know give me the impression you know this looks promising this could be yeah. Like, yeah yeah so that stimulated and sparked an interest yeah yeah for you then and and you've you've done a huge amount of work both in terms of pioneering the application of fmt in various different diseases and patient populations but you've also helped craft the consensus guidelines which are so important and other fundamental aspects to getting these products to patients so take me further then along the journey you know to to where we are today with regards to fmt and, and how did it go from patient one to more and 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 how did the field evolve as well over yeah. the course of that time okay so so i yeah i mean i think having having got that i mean again another aspect to this is we were we were working on pretty basic funding it was a few scraps of funds here and a few scraps of funds there this wasn't something being yeah. consistently funded by 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 either research or nhs funds and gradually as we kind of started to build a um uh, you know, a kind of case of people that we treated and the results seemed to be, you know, pretty convincing. We then started to get approached from a, a another, you know, local regional hospital who also has a sort of bank of people they've been keeping going on vancomycin and vdaxomycin who they um who they wanted us to treat. So we kind of did a flurry of those at the same time. So just for the listeners, vanc and vdaxomycin are antibiotics, yeah? Yeah, exactly. So they are they are the two of the most widely used anti C diff antibiotics, yeah. Uh, and uh, and we treated those patients, and they 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 did, they, they they did well as well. And it was kind of at that point that I think yeah. we said, look, you know, almost we need to take this a bit more. <laughs> right. We we need to take this a bit. We need to be a bit more robust in how right. we're doing this because it was still you know a fairly 
basic operation, you know, like like um, perhaps other people you've spoken to, you remember, it was a, you know, we didn't have some sort of slick homogenizer like we do now. We were starting with glorified blenders to, yep. to, to make to make things up. Yep. It, 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 it was really basic. And we yeah. had, um, <clears throat> I'm going to try and get him on, but Dr. Alistair McConaughey. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, <laughs> I think I, he was using his protein, a protein shaker. Yeah. Um, a fact, you know, it was, it was it was his he was pioneering it was though, his case he? series which i think was back from 2009 yep. that, yes. you know that i think you know that lots of people kind of certainly from uk perspective took up and took uh, stat up and took notice yeah. of and to come back to that idea of you know what you sometimes see in a very s- slick big paper is sometimes different from real world experience right what he described was real world experience because he was describing elderly frail multi-morbid patients yep. who are exactly the sort of phenotype of patients that we were seeing which to us, you know, added validity because he's thought, okay, what we're seeing here is what he's, what we've seen, you know, this is someone who's, 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 you know, a British operation. They're seeing exactly the same sort of phenotype of patients we recognize and it, and it, and it's working. It's working. Yep. So I think that also created a bit of validity in our minds in the, in the early yeah. stages. So during the early stages, it sounds to me like it was the clinicians and the kind of, uh, the people who straddle like yourself between the benchtop science and the application of therapies to patients who were actually not only applying the treatment, but you were creating the treatment. You were manufacturing, right? So yeah. So what guidance was there for you guys back then around how do you actually do this? Yeah. So at the time there was sort of from a pretty, there was a, over a pretty short period of time, there were a number of, um, uh, papers published by, um, uh, by by Mike Sadowski and colleagues in, mm. in 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 Minnesota and Matt Hamilton and uh, Alex Karutz and those those and lots Elian of those, younger youngster yeah, sorry correct, yeah. sorry so, and lots of the, yeah. lots of those papers you know concerned bread and butter things such as you know prep of your FMT including including you know use of glycerol as a cryopreservative so in other yeah. words that you know this this chemical we add to try and keep the bacteria in sort of suspended animation in the freezer. And, and and those sort of aspects, you know, were, were really helpful because they were kind of a bit more practical, pragmatic. We're trying to take things forward. And of course, you know, that sort of idea of then using frozen preparation, not fresh, that was pretty widely adapted by by by, by everyone in the early days. So walk us through that then. So the, the fresh the, the fresh was yeah okay you just, so, you so just process well, yeah, yeah you would get you would get a donation on the day from 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 someone yeah. in the early days remember there was a lot of you know you might choose a donor yourself you might pick your spouse and yeah. all that kind of stuff yeah. and uh and and you'd wait for them to deliver on the day yeah maybe they'd had a little bit of of, of, of screening but it but in generally it was you know just just to emphasize a lot you know a, a lot more basic than we, we would recognize now and just process on the day and then and, and then it's sort of immediately ministered. Yeah. But of course, you know, those kind of, you know, Alex Karut, Mike Stowski papers, there's those guys from Minnesota and and beyond, you know, who then gave these sort of protocols for you can actually prepare your FMT in advance and stick it in a freezer. You know, that they those were those were those were uh, I mean, you know, it sounds pathetic, but those were those were really big game changing things for us. Yeah. I mean, one, it meant that you could I mean, from a safety perspective, it was very important because it meant, look, you can pick someone you want, you can screen them at a time that's, you know, opposite for you, and you can you can prepare in front, you, you can prepare in front. So, from a safety aspect of being able to screen pre-screen someone was, was really helpful. Mm. And secondly, just from the convenience of saying that you know you could just you could just have a you know you could get a um 
you, you know a material out the freezer on the day that you you, yeah. you, you, you you need it i mean i mean there were other sort of bizarre things as well i mean perhaps you, you've noticed with your donors there is a sort of s i mean the early days when we had pretty small bank of donors there was this kind of like performance anxiety you know where people said i've got to produce a sample on the uh on the, on, on 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 the day or, or this patient with c diff might not get treated and then yeah. you know really worried that the night before that they were kind of you know yeah you know should i be mainlining probiotics stay off the curry you know <laughs> run, run, run a run a 10k so i'm in the you know the best shape possible to oh. to uh to, to you know donate tomorrow and then and then and then and then sheepishly contact you on the morning saying yeah. you know it, it, it it's, hasn't it's not happened happening whatever, man yeah <laughs> so um uh, you know that 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 was the, that was you know we, as 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 wacky as that sounds, that's where it was at. So I I can give some uh, perspective from our experience, and and as you know, we we collect donations every day from quite a large pool of people now, um, at our operation, and we do find that it does take a little bit of time to kind of get into the groove and get into the rhythm. Yep, that makes sense. Yeah, so does. this kind of, I, I think. There's, there's definitely, of course, a link between the gut and the brain. Sure. I think most of the communication goes up. <laughs> I've heard it's 80%, but I'm, I'm not sure how uh, strong that is. Uh, maybe need to ask Debbie Shawcross <laughs> and, and co. Um, but there's definitely some element of stress, pressure, anxiety that does impact on your bowel yeah. movements. And if, if you're being told, and this is back then, hey, you have to, otherwise we can't give person X who may be related to you or a partner their treatment that's quite a big thing isn't yeah, it yeah sure yeah exactly um so the invention of this or the 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 realization that we could apply a cryoprotectant and that frozen worked just as well i think was a bit of a revelation for everybody yeah, yeah. but how did we know then that it was as good like what was the the evidence base that existed then because yeah. we had the van nude and then we had some others didn't we yeah that's right so there, there were i mean that so some of that is some of that is clinical in other words that, that showing that fresh versus frozen was um uh was was you, you know a position of equipoise that that was that was as as, as good as each other which repeated in the kind of a number of a number of different settings right. and some of that was kind of microbiological where people had put frozen material in the freezers particularly from the um the finnish group uh i remember the sort of early papers they put they put their fmt in the freezer for a while up to up to you know six months or even longer in some cases taking them out and look for aspects such as you know you know my, using sequencing or culture to try and check what what bacteria what microorganisms are there and are they comparable to what we had at the beginning and 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 they seem they seem broadly comparable with with a few subtle differences, but seem broadly comparable. Uh, so I think I think it was those two things. You know, studies showing that one, what you stuck in the freezer was what you got out at, at six months. You know, looking at particular at least from a particular perspective, uh, and secondly from a you know from a from a clinical experience perspective that that that, that both fresh you know that the frozen seems as as good. Yeah. Fast forwarding to today, and I'll go back again after this, but. Are we still of the view that fresh and frozen is comparable, or is there like any schools of thought that says no, it has to be fresh for whatever reason? Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I know anyone who who would who would advocate in any enthusiastic way for for fresh in any capacity, and from so many aspects, you know, those that we've discussed uh, already. But I, I mean, principally in terms of. You know the 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 safe the the safety of the of and the efficiency of the process, principally safety. Um, but I, I yeah I just I just do not know that there is anyone who would who 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 would have advocate for fresh at all. Or, or I think we had made uh, you know when we'd written up just to go back to what you mentioned before about the B 
BSG HIS guidelines. I yeah. think I think when we when we done the last version of the guidelines, we had we had made some allusion to 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 fresh, but not strongly advocated for it. Remember, when you write a guideline, you do have to think about the different settings and the different pushes and pulls in which people are operate. And that that in a that in a te- well resourced teaching hospital may be may be different to to, to 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 different settings. And while we're never advocating for a reduction in safety, we do have to accept that there's a balance of risks and benefits in different settings. So we did mention fresh there. Uh, lots of subsequent guidelines have have have, have, have really um, downplayed the role of fresh for exactly all the reasons right. we've we've discussed. Right. So, in terms of the guidelines and the field progressing internationally, is it fair to say that in terms of regulation and guidance, there wasn't anything sort of formal from the competent authorities like the MHRA, HTA, FDA, and in the first instance, it was these consensus papers that came up to help guide the clinicians and the manufacturers. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that, I think that is a fair description. Yeah, exactly. So how did you go about producing the first draft of the consensus guidelines okay. for the UK? Yeah, so there were, there were, there were, there were a few elements at, that at play at the same time. So um, there'd been a number of sort of meetups of interested stakeholders and parties. I, I remember you, you, you've, been, you've been very active in, in those discussions where the MHRA was represented. And, and I think all of us saying, look, we recognise we've got something novel here, but how are we really going to make this take this forward unless we have some sort of, um, uh, you know, guideline or or, or, or recommendation right. for how to for how to do this? No one is saying that the guideline we might come up with is the final finished all singing or dancing project. It's a field in evolution, but we need some sort of flag in the sand, particularly in terms of safety of our patients. And the other aspect was a growing interest in research and and where FMT might fit in a research environment. Uh, I mean, certainly, I know when I when I you know went to funders or whatever in the, in the early days of this, they were saying, "You're going to do what? And you want to research what? And 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 what guidelines? You, have, you know, where is this? You, you, you know, where is there any guideline saying this is this is something that you know has any sort of standard of care or, or you know, whenever you're saying you want to do research, particularly from a clinical perspective, you typically go along and say, look. This is this is we've written it. We've got a guideline that says this is the standard of care, but we accept there are some gaps, big gaps in the knowledge base, and this is how we want to advance them. Uh, and, and we couldn't do that, and so I think that was actually that was potentially risking us being paralysed for in terms of moving on from a research perspective. That from, from from our point of view, from your point of view, from any other's point of view, has has, has been so important to our to our you, you know that that our, our fields of interest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you convened the interested parties yeah and then my understanding is that it was a huge amount of work to get to the the output so how did you make sure that all the key elements were sort of contained within the document yeah. and also there must have been some contentious points yeah okay so there we we, we i think because it was something new but when what was to our advantage is there were a lot of interested stakeholders so a lot of people who were enthusiastic yep. about playing a role in it so i remember our, an initial scoping meeting where there was an enormous breadth of 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 representative parties almost too many people wanting to right. to have a finger in the pie and uh, you know an enormous number of people want to say that to to have some contribution to it um i suppose we did have some basis for for how to structure it because there were already uh, a, a couple of 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 kind of consensus documents or a couple yep. of early guidelines that were out there yep. which gave us some sort of shape for what a consensus document might or or a guideline might look like 
And uh, the people we were working with, British Society of Gastroenterology and the Healthcare Infection Society, were supportive in that they already have a pretty robust framework for how they want guidelines done. For instance, they, HIS are very rigorous on using uh, methodology similar to NICE in yep. how, how they approach things. You know, they are, they are very um, rightly pedantic about the kind of quality of, 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 of guidelines. So they, they, they provide us with a frame, frame, framework and structure as well. Got it. And w- what areas were contentious? Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm sure there's a few. Yeah. I. I think. I. I think. I think. As it always is, that donor screening. The donor screening. Donor element. screening was was a sort of particular um, uh, area of uh, of interest. At the, it was. I remember when we were writing the guidelines. It'd been about a, a year earlier. There'd been some updating UK guidelines rega- regarding multi-drug resistant bacteria and their carriage within gut. And it was a, a time when many of us, particularly working in urban centres, who were doing rectal screening or, or stool screening on people coming into hospital as acute cases or people coming in for surgery or whatever, were seeing these enormous explosions of people testing positive for multi-drug resistant organisms. I remember that was a that was a big one. A particular kind of, you know, area of debate. But even even smaller things, you know, should we be you know, it was also a kind of inflection point for for what assays people were using, you know, right. should we be using culture or should we be using PCR based assays or right. so so what we screened for, uh how we screened for it. Yeah. Um and while cost effectiveness wasn't part of our remit, there were certainly people from a whole range of different backgrounds, from people from some more well-resourced, um, you know, hospitals and centres and people who were who were really working hard to try and keep a smaller scale FMT operation together who said, look, this will cripple us. We'll never have any donors if we have to do this, right. this sort of stuff. So there, there, there were a number of different pushes and pulls and different factors to balance. Yeah. Do you think it's a natural evolution for some of the smaller groups and facilities and so on to sort of move out to or sort of start using the bigger ones or do you think that hospitals should always maintain a practice because it keeps people current and they have access to material when they need it and that kind of thing yeah i think there's a i think there's a potential role for both but i think if we look at other aspects of uh specialized aspects of you know of clinical medicine particularly that might be related to some sort of therapeutic delivery perhaps stem cell transplant is an example yeah there might be something whereby it's very reasonable to sit to for someone locally to kind of give you an opinion or to provide some aspect of your of of of, of, of your care or provide input to your care but but actually to actually receive the therapy and have the sort of most intensive input and actually get the therapy itself you might do from a, a, a specialist center for a number of reasons one is pulling expertise and two is the is the resource required to kind of keep the center going you know right. be that stool bank or stem cell transplant center or whatever that is yep. so i i think i think i think you know there is there is there is a there was a clear move for most people's mind to kind of a you know however you want to refer to that like a hub and spoke model yeah. sometimes referred to yeah um as that being the way forward and i don't think there was any kind of particular resistance from anyone about yeah, that that makes sense and i suppose one other element is that smaller centers or different centers might have particular expertise in disease yeah. areas and patient populations and therefore them being able to pioneer their own microbiome research yeah. and their own capability seems quite reasonable yeah. i suppose yeah and there's other aspects you know that, that kind of feed into that as well that for instance you know you know as, as someone who who's kind of just just on the, the the tail end of 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 their you know clinical training after after what does after, that mean? after does a that, decade or so that means you're close to consulting yeah. yeah um but 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 you know there's lots of people who were then 
spend some time training in a specialist center and then we'll be have elements they're training in a in a, in a, in a you know smaller center or whatever and and if they can bring the expertise they've learned in one center and use it productively in another center yeah. great you know why shouldn't they do it i mean you know so so um uh yeah i, I think i think i think while there is kind of a, a role for both based on a lot of local factors that that, that kind of hub or spoke or centralized model was, mm. was is you know got a lot of advantages it's probably a good point in time now to revisit the the changes in rigor and robustness and stringency from back in 2012 say 2013 with that first paper from van nu to where yeah. we are kind of today in terms yeah. of the numbers of different pathogens we look for the quality of the assays the gmp facilities that kind of thing yeah. so what what's changed and and sort of okay. what's been the evolution? Uh, well, the, the, I mean, the donor screening is is you know clearly the the major aspect. You know those factors we've touched on already, including what you screen for, how you screen on them, and, and and undoubtedly the breadth of what you screen for. I think there's a couple of things that particularly fed into that. One was the one was this kind of um, uh, you know the sort of Boston experience of multi drug resistant organism transmission yeah. in, a, in, a, in a small number of patients, ESBLE coli transmission yeah. in a small number of um, immunosuppressed patients uh, in, a, in a trial in Boston of which of which patients got invasive disease and one of the patients died. I mean, that was a... It's a big moment for us, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, I think, I think that's obviously was a big wake-up call for, yeah. for, for everyone in the community yeah. about not where perhaps there was an element of complacency of screening, you yeah. know, creeping in before that. And may I also just touch on diy fmt yeah. at this point you know because it's like there are videos on youtube where people give instructions to other people yeah. to say look you know you can do this in your kitchen but whilst you might be able to collect a stool sample and subject it to some level of processing in your kitchen there are risks yeah. associated with this yeah. real risks that have been proven now so i mean do you on the DIY thing, do you speak to patients who've tried or want to try, or is that I, 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 I occasionally I, I I get less than I used to, but I used to get a lot of emails from people saying, you know, I am in absolute dire straits with uh, some sort of GI or liverated disease, predominantly it could be some other diseases, and I'm aware about the uh, gut microbiome being contributory. I have uh, I feel I've exhausted all conventional medical avenues for it. My life is my, you know, my quality of life is extremely poor, and I am really so desperate that I, 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 I I'm going to give this a try, basically, and asking for a bit of steer or a bit of advice, or really kind of wanting, you know, this is okay, me to say yeah. this is okay, isn't it? And, and, right. uh, and it, it, it's a difficult position for a clinician because on the one hand, I could, I could see here was someone completely desperate. In many cases, they really had exhausted a long list of lines of medical therapy uh, with, with, with minimal benefit. However, <laughs> you know, I couldn't give them the answer they wanted to hear. I couldn't say to them, sure. yeah, I think this is a good idea because, because in my mind, the, the risks of, 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 of adverse outcomes, be those risk of infection, be those some sort of physical damage to themselves via administration or whatever those risks are, in my mind, those risks out, outweighed any potential benefits. So, I, 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 I you know, I, I replied to people, and, I, and it was a difficult. It was always a difficult, a difficult discussion because I, I just could, couldn't say to them, you know, I couldn't give, I couldn't say to them, yes, I think this is a good idea because I, I, I didn't. I, I always thought the risks outweighed the benefits. Do we have 
somewhere for these people to go now in the UK or is it still because we don't have an approved treatment yet, you know? I think I think I think there's I think I think the answer to that is yes and no. And the even when um I, and the way I say that the way the way I say it, the reason I say that is because even when FMT has been at a, a fairly early stage and even smaller scale centers like like it's been the case for for large parts of our existence where, where people worked on a pharmacy exemption you know providing FMT yep. on particular circumstances to particular patients yeah uh, there's always been a sort of there's been a proviso uh that comes with that and that you can kind of make a decision about patients within your within your professional care um about whether fmt might be appropriate on a sort of compassionate case-by-case basis and in fact some of the consensus documents that, that i've been involved in you know from from led by Gianluca Yanero in Rome and, and, and other colleagues. He's ha- coming on next week. So. <laughs> have also, have, 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 Need to make sure the mic's not yeah. too close because he's so animated he's and an passionate. Animated guy. Yeah, really but but animated. have also, this was also kind of hot topic of discussion when, when we formulated there that, you, you know, it's a difficult, it's a different scenario, someone emailing you saying, I want to do a DIY FMT myself to you being a, a, a clinic, you know, a professional clinician assessing someone professionally recognizing that that you know that you are providing screened fmt that you think you are you are producing to a to a to a particular standard didn't discuss in the multi multidisciplinary team setting about right. whether fmt imt would be appropriate for that particular patient balancing that particular patient's risks and benefits right. and, and we've used it in that setting i think a number of other centers have used it in that setting in fact some of our work perhaps we'll get onto it perhaps we weren't about about multi-drug resistance etc um ha, ha, you know kind of kind of evolved from from that situation originally um and and so that 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 is a kind of different scenario or a completely different scenario to to diy fmt and that that that, that, mm. that clearly seems to have a place totally and um, what what actually really drove me to get going with enterobiotics was um i came across the diy fmt and i also spoke to a clinician in uh, edinburgh who i sort of sort of said so you're doing fmt so yeah 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 it's great it's fantastic i see if patients are getting better i said that's great and i said well how are you doing it he said well I'll go down to b and q uh, and pick up a blender and i do it in the ward and i just thought there has to be a yes. better way. Yes. Yeah. We've got patients that need this. And we have infrastructure, engineering, we've got some, you know, knowledge from other fields. Surely we can apply that together and create something that makes it safer, more accessible, and ultimately better. So it was the DIY element plus the hearing of doctors doing it themselves. So it made me think, whoa, I would like to try and help and and create a company that 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 makes yeah. it better for people. I, 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 mean, I mean, as a kind of slight parallel to that, I realise it's not a perfect analogy, but you know, we all recognise the role for blood transfusion. Yeah. But you wouldn't say, you know, if you, no. if you if you if you wouldn't say, well, I'm critically ill, just give me any old blood. Doesn't matter if you've screened for hepatitis right. B or not. Right. You would still expect that the blood has been screened to a very high standard. Right. And the risks and benefits of you having a blood transfusion because you're in you're in hospital and your blood count's dropped a little bit low is 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 different for you having a road traffic accident and half your circulation on the floor of a and e but we will still expect no one sure. would argue that the quality has to be as good totally. and, by, and by and by you know it's not a perfect analogy but it 
you know, but 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 you can see the parallels in that, that, you know, regardless of scenario, regardless of the risks and benefits, there clearly needs to be very high standards of the quality of the product you're giving when you're totally. talking about giving people biological materials. Totally. We, we should be striving to do the very best we can at present with the knowledge that we have and then striving to innovate and improve moving forward, ultimately for the benefit of patients everywhere. I mean, I personally think that everybody on this planet can benefit from microbiome modulation, not necessarily FMT, IMT, but everyone's got a microbiome. It plays important roles in every single person. And there must be ways that we can tweak and improve. For some patients, they need the FMT, IMT. So let us work together to create something that has maximum impact and minimal risk um, for these people. So going, going back to donor screening then, so we talked about the MDROs. How else has our knowledge evolved on, on donor screening? And so it sounds like we're testing for a lot more now. Yeah, right? I mean, I was going to say, I think I said, I, I think I started by saying uh, perhaps two, two kind of uh, time points which made us take a bit of a, a wake-up call. Number one was regarding MDRO screening. I think number two was regarding COVID. Now, I think yeah. pretty early on, we, yeah. all, we all realised, particularly when those sort of early papers started coming out about, you know, people having GI symptoms related to COVID, prolonged excretion of, of, of SARS-CoV-2 in stool, that I think very early on, I can remember actually in March 2020, we put out our first consensus document that yep. was, looking back at it now, was 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 pretty bland, but, you know, was basically the idea of it was to put a flag in the sand to say, guys, we might have a problem here and we need to think about it. Yep. Now, I'm not, you know, as it happened, I think we we kind of traversed COVID. I wouldn't say we've, we've fully completely got a grip as, as as lots of people haven't for for large aspects of medicine but we've got we've got we've got a safe approach you know we have really robust yep. assays for testing for SARS-CoV-2 in store we know about yep. screening our donors etc and the, va the vaccine we consider, we well. consider vaccination yeah, yeah. um but I, I think that was part of a, a, a of a kind of larger wake-up call if you will to 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 us thinking about uh, again, recognizing we cannot sit on our laurels about dentist screening. And I think really the wake up call there is that this is exactly as you've said in evolution, that we can't say we've got the finished product, we've got the perfect screening tool, and that's it. You know, case book closed, that's what we're going to do for the rest of the time. That was a wake up call that we need to be nimble and keep um, and keep our eye out for new threats and for it, you know things that are evolving the whole time, and and that we that we kind of need to keep this under constant review and and uh, as things develop. Uh, you know, in a parallel to that, there there have been, you know, as soon as uh, the alert was sounded over monkeypox, yep. there have been a, 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 you know a number of very active email chains about look, you know, does this have any implications for for for, for, for you know for us? And I, I was I was pleased I was pleased to see that you know people were immediately that the you know the alarm bells went off immediately. Here's a new pathogen. What are the implications for us as it applies to donor screening or beyond? Yeah. Um. And I, I I think it I think you know as 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 traumatic from so many aspects that that, that SARS-CoV-2 and COVID has been that that perhaps it has put in our minds we need to be fluid. You know we need to kind of keep alert about new things we need to test for and how we can do better the whole time. 
I suppose one of the other elements or benefits associated with freezing is there can be some quarantine yeah. period built in. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, though, I think we probably need to accept that we're never going to be able to screen for everything. And there are going to be emerging threats that appear from time to time yep. that are endemic in a particular geography where your donors are. And you have to mitigate against that through questionnaire and ideally some sort of testing, right? Yep. yep. So the current thing here on monkeypox is assessing risky behavior and yeah precisely like any yeah. if obviously any physical symptoms and signs pre pre precisely yeah. that i think i think you know what, what we're saying is that a, a lot of the uh, a, a number of different risk factors that apply to monkey pox acquisition are parts that are are relevant to parts of the uh, of the questionnaire and health screening for for, for donor screening more generally yeah. and we'll, we'll actually kind of keep the risk pretty 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 minimal there exactly yeah. as you say you know there is debate ongoing about do we need to push harder than that you know in terms of you, you know potentially testing etc but i think i think the the first kind of slight uh sigh of relief that we got is is recognizing that probably there that, that lots of those questions we asked for about yeah um donor risk factors are, 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 are going to overlap with a lot of risk factors for monkeypox and, yeah. and and minimize risk pretty considerably from that aspect yeah no no that, that makes a lot of sense um so going going back a step then uh to the donor screening how are you putting together the consensus guidelines for donor screening and the remainder of the protocols and procedures at the moment like because there's been I suppose maybe you can give some context for the listener just how much research has come out. Yeah. Since, okay. So even so, since your last one. Yeah. Okay. So 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 to give us all to answer that very broadly, we have two sections of the guidelines we're kind of looking at. One is related to FMT principally for C diff or an FMT service more generally, and the second aspect is um, looking at FMT in the context of uh, non C diff conditions. And uh, the first protocol when you're writing the guideline is you pull everything published since your last guideline, and yep. you have a you have a look at you have a look at what's there. And is it yourself at seeding this with Nabil? Yeah, that's right, with yep. with, with Nabil and, yep. and colleagues at St Thomas's. Yeah. And for the FMT C diff question, we've used about we've reviewed about eight thousand different publications already on the first screen. And for the um, for the sort of non C diff since this remember this is since first of January 2018. Um, and remember, two years of that, people weren't really receiving FM, you know, a big chunk of two years, people, people you know, trolls for FMT and non-ZDF settings were were, were downscaled. Because of the COVID. Because yeah. of COVID, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but nevertheless, we've managed to find over 11,000 abstracts to, to, to 11,000 papers wow. to screen. So so it is... It is so, you, so are you saying that there's... Sorry, just... Um, that's quite... That's... <laughs> Bigger number than I was expecting you to yeah. say. So, has there been eleven thousand publications relating to FMT over the over the last four years? Well, again, keeping keeping with that you know rigorous structure, we have to pull everything, everything that's reported as a conference, everything that is yep. you know reported in the medical literature in any meaningful capacity. Yep. We have to at least you, you know at least give it some sort of degree of consideration, uh, and uh, and basically, yeah, since first January twenty eighteen. On even the first glance, we, we we've got about almost twenty thousand, you know, publications in some shape or form to to, to cast our eye over. Goodness gracious! So so twenty thousand. So, so hold on a second. Eighteen thousand for C diff and eleven. Oh, 000. sorry. Yeah, so over eleven thousand for non C diff, and, and 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 near to near near to eight thousand. Wow, this is incredible. No, so, but so, nobody's ever going to get through. All no, of so that, right? so so you know what we what we what we do when we pull the literature is we 
we we we we put our eyes onto every you know the first few lines of every publication. A lot of it is immediately clear. It's not rigorous enough. It's not relevant enough for us to consider for the guideline. But we for for, for due diligence for the process, we have you know we we have to at least have at least at least two people, often three people, cast their eyes on every single one of those. Wow. <laughs> so you're going to have read. 20,000 abstracts. Yeah, so we've just we've just we've just we've just done the sift. Now the vast majority of those to, to you know to put it in context, the vast majority of those are not relevant enough or are not high quality enough or are not contributory enough for us to you know kind of consider the whole publication for 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 yeah. for, for, for the guideline. Yeah. It's only a small proportion of that that kind of makes the cuts. Has um, there been anything super cool that you've seen that I can just press you on? A lot of it is cool, and I know I'm going to get to your work um, at Imperial with Julian and colleagues because it is, it's, well, to use my phraseology, super cool. But, you know, 20,000, anything jump out at you? Like, whoa, that's mad. Uh, I, 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 I don't think, it, I, I can't think of one gr a perfect example offhand. I mean, I suppose the breadth of non-CDI work that is, that is, that is, is, is carrying on, uh, and I say breadth in terms of, means of preparation yeah. more creative forms of donor selection yeah. um indications for administration yeah. um tentacles in which the microbiome might appear to have a role as a contribution to disease i suppose those are the those are the kind of elements that kind of jump out at you on a, on, on a screen yeah. yeah so big question for you what makes a good donor <laughs> yeah okay well okay we could be here for the rest of the we could be here for the rest of the day yeah. so i mean to be honest we, we could do tons of episodes on this um and i'll tell you what i'll strike a few off for okay you based yeah. on, on on my experience so uh, i'll start with the less scientific stuff so obviously someone that donates frequently could be a good donor yeah okay someone who donates large amounts of stool yeah. every time they donate could be a good donor yeah somebody who always passes the daily health check questionnaire could be a good donor somebody whose stool always fits within what i'll call the most uh high level assessments of quality so bristol stool score yeah i guess for the listener and uh, we and and you do it's in the consensus guidelines there's a visual appearance check yeah. on the stool yep. to make sure that there's not diarrhea or any presence of mucus or any presence of blood Bloods, yeah. or it's, it's come from someone who's very constipated so yeah. to speak which could yeah. be an indicator of pathology so i'll give you a few of those now we can get on to what i think would be the more complicated stuff like for example uh well, well, I'm okay. Well, let me let me have a go. Yeah, go, I mean, go, go, go. I mean, you're you're the expert. Well, I'm I mean, just throwing I mean, in the company experience. You know, for, you know? for, for for instance, a, a particular field of interest has been about. You know, there was a very high profile case a few years, a, a reported case yes, a few years ago yes, yes. of a uh, of a patient who received um, FMT. Yeah. From their, um, from their, from their, uh, over, it was Relative, a thin, thin, it? thin patient who received FMT from, from their, from their overweight daughter and, and put on a lot of weight very rapidly. And that kind of dovetailed with a, with a few publications at the same time yeah. of, about, of, um, microbiome transmissibility related to, um, uh, you know, weight and metabolism. And at that moment in time, there was this uh, flurry of activity that mm. we've cracked it. All you need to do is find, <laughs> It's just find, <laughs> just find, you know, find someone who's, who fits those kind of criteria you said, yeah. who has the right phenotype. So if we want to crack, if we want to crack obesity, which, which obviously has a, you know, which, which, which it seems increasingly likely has a microbiome contribution, 
uh, all we need to do is find a thin donor, basically. Yeah. And that'll, that, that, that'll be it. And needless to say, it hasn't been that simple. Can, can, so I'll just add, I'll add something to this um, and I'll press you on what evidence there is for weight loss through FMT. I've also seen from Max Newdorp's group, I believe, um, a paper in cancer cachexia. Right, okay, yeah. And they specifically chose obese donors, I believe. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, and I think scientifically it all goes back to the Jeff Gordon OB-OB mouse study in nature, which basically showed you can transfer an obese or lean phenotype through FMT. Um, and they showed that it had, in the case of the obese mouse, uh, more efficiency in energy harvest, so it could extract more calories from the food or yeah. whatever. Um, so I remember this as well because there was all the Daily Mail headlines. Yeah, yeah right. you want to get thin, take an FMT yeah. pill. But I don't think we've seen that translate, no, have we? No. Into... Okay. So I, I mean, there, there are, there are a number of studies that have looked at uh, FMT in the context of, of you know, pure obesity alone, and they, they haven't, sh they haven't shown that you know they clearly haven't had a positive outcome in terms of FMT, you know, from a thin donor or you know, a healthy donor or whatever you know that transfer of phenotype that you would have seen in you know that, that you appear to see in a in a, in a in a mouse setting they've shown other proxies that are promising in terms of some microbiome changes towards kind of more you know in inverted commas favorable microbiome elements and changes in aspects of microbiome functionality look look promising so but they haven't they haven't actually shown you you, you know weight loss you can make a number of different comments on that one might be you know, is the way, you know, lots of lots of these non-CDI studies in obesity and beyond have just said, well, look, let's just, let's extrapolate the way we prep an FMT for a C. diff, for C. diff and use it here. Maybe we need to do something a little bit different. I mean, for instance, give one example, you know, you and me have had a debate, others have had a de debate about the, the role of anaerobic preparation where most of our colonic bacteria are, um, are anaerobic. Not a big deal for C. diff, seems to work without, but maybe it is important as we start to move on to more nuanced disorders. Um, uh, so maybe there's aspects of the preparation and we're getting a false negative. But but increasingly, as, as studies are replicated and we kind of see the same pattern again, you know, it, it, it kind of, you know, the take-home message is, that there's that, that you know that we we need to do a bit better. That's that's not working. Another interpretation. I mean, as I said, there, you know, even if the weight hasn't hasn't decreased in these people. Maybe that's too hard an endpoint. And actually, the fact that we're seeing some microbiome changes that look beneficial, and we're seeing some metabolome changes that look beneficial, maybe that's a sign. Maybe that's a sign that we kind of we are on the right track, but we need to ramp up the game. That you know that just one FMT or two FMTs or whatever it is is just not going to be enough. enough. Yeah. Precisely. So you mentioned the metabolome. So what what is the metabolome and and what work do you do on maybe selecting a donor based on the metabolism? Okay, so so um, our gut, our, our microbiome of all our mucosal services, our model, my research is focused on the gut microbiome. They are chemical factories. They produce an enormous amount of 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 you know small small molecules or chemicals that often we refer to as you know metabolites. And we talk about the metabolome, the whole family, the whole collection, the entirety of all these metabolites, these small chemicals. Uh, where do they come from? Some of those are things that the bacteria produce essentially themselves. So, for instance, they could be dietary components that we've eaten that we can't digest ourselves, that they ferment, that they turn from one chemical into another. Some of those, uh, another large chunk of those are, um, are, 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 are things that chemicals we've produced ourselves 
that the gut bacteria can actually then change. They can, you know, they can chemically transform them. Um, to give two examples, you know, the first category, stuff from our diet we can't digest. We talk about a group of metabolites called short-chain fatty acids yep. that seem to have a really important role in, 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 in a number of different aspects of our health. And to give an example, the second one is, um, is a, you know, an obvious example is bile. So lots of people will have heard of us making bile and thinking it's something to do with digesting our foods and particularly related to fat or whatever. But we also know that bile has this really complex chemical digest, um, composition, huge number of different chemicals in there, and that our gut bacteria are able to process those into a whole different family of chemicals, which have whole different sorts of chemical properties and can do a whole load of different things. Wow. So these are two, so there's two inputs really for the, the bile acids and the short chain fatty acids. And they're both, I, I suppose, in some respect, human driven. So for the short chain fatty acids, it's almost like, I mean, is it fair to say we feed, we eat stuff and it contains stuff that we can metabolize and break down and give us energy and, and nutrients and so on. Yeah. And then there's this other element, which is the non-digestible component. So that finds its way through our gut and then the bugs go, Oh, here we go. Here's my lunch or my dinner. Yeah. And and they sort of eat that and then and then they produce short chain fatty acids which benefit us. Yeah. So, so it's almost like Well exactly. I mean it gets back to this idea of you know what 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 are the gut bacteria doing there in the in, in, why in are they the first there? place? And you know, and it comes back to this idea of it's it's you know what 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 scientists and doctors talk about a, a coevolution. Yeah. In other words, that for for you know for millions of years yeah. We have lived with gut bacteria and, and they have lived with us and we kind of rely on each other as we find in huge other aspects of, you know, ecology in the natural world. Yeah. So what do we do? We keep the heating on, very relevant at the moment. We keep the heating on. We keep the we, we keep the acidity right. We keep the plumbing going so we provide a nice warm environment that's yep. that's not too acidic, that's that's not too much the other way for them to for them to live in. And what do they provide us? They 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 produce these chemicals which are useful for them, they're nutrients for them, but they're also as a sort of as a collateral, they're things that we can use and we've evolved to use them. So for instance, we talk about those short chain fatty acids, and there's one that we talk about a lot called butyrate, which is sort of one of the major energy sources for the cells lining our large bowel. So right. you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't we we wouldn't we wouldn't have that chemical were it not for the gut bacteria. So um, you know, so 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 yeah, it's really important to kind of get a sense of that. Yeah, that that coevolution. Yeah. So, would it be wise then, or is it worth considering if short chain fatty acids are so important, selecting a donor who's got either loads of short chain fatty acids because I presume you can measure that, right? Yeah. Uh, or lots of bugs who we know produce loads of short chain fatty acids. Like, is that is that a fair sort of framework, if you like, yeah. for rational donor so, so, selection. So I think I think I think that's I think that's a, a a pretty good start. I think that's a pretty good start. You know, we know that these are important uh metabolites produced by uh produced by gut bacteria. And so yeah, exactly selecting out a donor who either has lots of these short chain fatty acids or has lots of uh bacteria that produce them is really important i suppose one aspect of that is it's kind of it, it, you know you know when we talk about short chain fatty acids we talk about two things we talk about uh the material having to be the dietary material having to be that the bugs produce and the bugs themselves and the two are related to each other but 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 from a donor donor selection you know it can't be someone who is eating a really good diet and has got a lot of short chain fatty acids at one point in time you're screening them right. and then it's gone off and had a lot of fast food, you know, straight afterwards. And you right. know, there, there has the, there's that, there's that kind of dependency that yep. the bugs are there and that the, what's feeding them is there, that the fuel's there as well. Yeah. So should we be 
I don't know if we can do this, but asking our donors to eat a particular way, um, giving them a supplement or whatever. Okay, so this this is a sort of hot hot area of discussion, and there have been a few small scale kind of reports on on what you should should you be giving nutritional advice to your donors? Should you be giving nutritional advice to your um, recipients about it? I, I mean, in terms of what is published evidence that we know definitely works you know the kind of the kind of the, the jury is, is is still out there has been some work from um, um uh and an israeli study published recently in in, in the big gastroenterology Eran, Elanav, yeah. i can't remember if it was that lab or, or, or one of the others from but, the wiseman i think it was yeah. from wiseman yeah of, of, of they the do actually, some pretty cool stuff. They do some pretty, 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 pretty cool stuff. Yeah. I, I think I, you know they they've obviously got some pretty broad-minded ethics ethics panels as well. For but where they where they've um, uh, I think it was a a, uh, a set of overweight and obese people who were given different dietary um, advice and different supplements for, for what they should take, and then people had their own uh, and then were allowed to kind of have a bit more of a freer diet and had their own stall collected while they were on that kind of these different diets and then and then transferred back into them to see if that could kind of hold their weight or if their weight changed or whatever so in other words wow. changing their diet to see if that impacted on their microbiome and if that could have a kind of longer term effect and it did seem to be a kind of degree of influence you know a direct line of interaction between diet gut microbiome and then actually you know what we call phenotype, in other words, sort of clinical wow. outcome. Yeah. So a lot of people know what they need to do to become healthier. It's like eat more fruit and veg, cut down on the booze if they drink, yeah. stop smoking if they smoke, yeah. exercise more and so on. Could it be that, particularly for the dietary element, what's conferring the health benefits that we see phenotypically is a shift in the microbiome towards more short-chain fatty acid producers, more, I don't know, secondary bile acid producers... And a follow-on from that question, but it's related. Are there elements of the metabolome that we've just not characterized, and that could be so important? Okay. So these, first, these, first, these, 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 these are these are these are big questions, James. <laughs> we've not finished what makes a good donor yet. I, I, I think I, we're I, moving I, nicely. I, I think yeah. what I think I would answer that like I answered the last question by saying I think these are probably good starts. You know, I think yeah. these are probably you know steps in the right direction because these are groups of. These are groups of metabolites that we know are beneficial, that are produced by bacteria that are beneficial to our gut. Yeah. However, to give a sort of really clear binary, you know, it's as simple as that. You know, it's as simple simple as that. I I I think I think is 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 difficult to say. But I think those are, I think those are, you know, I, does our diet, you know, are we pretty consistently convinced that those lifestyle improvements translate to microbiome benefit microbiome compositional and functional changes associated with health um uh and could that potentially impact on our health more globally and is that part of the is that part of the intermediary of those things improving our health i, I think we're, we're kind of getting increasingly confident that that that, that is the case on, on that second question the about metabolome, yeah, yeah that second question about 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 characterizing the metabolome so when when we do we do a lot of analysis where i, where I work in imperial college whereby we take we take samples from pre and post people getting FMT IMT or we take um, samples from people in different who've had different sorts of healthcare intervention, and we profile their we profile their metabolome before and after interventions, 
And it's what we do is we, we do we, we use these sort of really advanced chemical techniques to try and look for really minute quantities of, of chemicals present in a particular system. So be that in a in a poo sample or blood sample or whatever. Yeah. And some of those chemicals, sometimes when we're looking for that, that that analysis, we can say, look, we've definitely found this chemical, we've definitely found that chemical. It's a it's a pretty common scenario where we can say, look, there's something here, we're pretty convinced it's from this family of chemicals. So we think it's a form of bile acid or we think it's a form of lipid, for instance, but we can't actually, you know, it's at the limit of knowledge to actually specifically put a name on which this, what this actual right. small chemical, what this metabolite is. However, what we can see is it really, is that chemical might really influence, you know, higher levels of that chemical in your gut before, before an FMT might really influence how well you do it, or it might but we can't actually name what it is. So wow. we, we're, in loads, we're in this scenario very common where we can identify chemicals and see that they appear to be relevant to, you know, they might change after a clinical intervention or they might influence how well you do with a particular intervention. Right. But we don't, we can't actually put a name on it. We might be able to say broadly what it is, wow. but we can't, we can't definitely pinpoint it. And is that because no one's ever characterized it before or? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's essentially, yeah. I mean, even, even this year or the past year, we've been recognizing, for instance, as I said, I'm, I'm, I don't go out much and spend a lot of time looking at bile acids. And we've seen like a whole family of bile acids that are sort of bound to amino acids, which is these, these, these other kind of real basic building blocks of life that are that are around in our, our, our gut and elsewhere in our bodies. As a sort of whole family of these that we kind of we kind of didn't know about. So yeah, as time moves on and the sophistication of what we can analyze moves on, then, then we kind of see more and more detail. But we're almost uh, we're almost some you know sometimes we're at a stage whereby we can we are really good at uh detecting stuff at really minute detail, but we 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 can't even actually label what it what it what Incredible. it is yeah our, our ability to generate data is is exceeds our ability to analyze the data it's incredible so on the the elements that we don't understand how what's the workflow or the workup to try and identify what it is and then see what it does and so on like, okay is there a way of doing it yeah so from the point of view of you know um you know just to kind of keep on this topic of of metabolites and um, you know these small chemicals is is again it's it's kind of advanced and you know what we call analytical chemistry techniques using really advanced chemistry techniques to say look i can't tell what this particular chemical is at this moment in time but i think it consists of a number of smaller chemicals that might be that might be bound to each other and we sometimes we artificially generate the chemical in a lab run that through the machine and say look does that seem to have the same properties as wow. what we think it might be to try and compare and and, and to try and come up with things or we, or we might, um, yeah. So those are those are the sort of approaches that you, you might use. So, is it too much of a scientific leap of faith? And I'm I'm getting excited listening to you because they could all be novel drugs. They could be, couldn't they? They could be if they have some demonstrable, consistent effect on something that has a downstream therapeutic benefit. Then they yeah. could be drugs. So, yeah. So I mean, we also we 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 kind of looking in more. You know, we're looking in more environments than we ever did before, which I think also gives us access to. We're kind of looking in greater detail. I mean, for instance, there was a there was a paper in in in, in you know very renowned scientific journal Nature from from a year or two ago that looked at that looked at centenarians and they took yeah. a whole load of centenarians and looked at what's the composition of their microbiome and what what metabolites, what small chemicals do they produce. Now this. This isn't your average set of people that you might look look at. You know, these are very distinctive set of people. 
Um, and they found particular bile acids that you know we, we don't really know very much about. But now we've seen them in this population. They're particularly prominent there. Um, we, we can start to see them when we now look back at data we've really collected wow. from other populations. You, you, you know, you'll be you'll be aware, and, and other people will be aware that there's been this idea about people living in you know tribal African communities who are eating, who, who obviously don't have any exposure to a Western diet or don't have any exposure to industrialization. Could the um, you know could an aspect of that be that they've actually got a you know in inverted commas better microbiome? They've got a, you know because they they haven't had that sort of dent or hit to the microbes from. Um, you know, in industrialization, westernization, antibiotics, fast foods, etc. And again, when you look at those sort of communities, you can see particular bugs and particular metabolites that you, you wouldn't see if you just start looking in Western populations. So I think I think there's aspects of of we are getting more sophisticated in how we're looking at the samples and what we've got, but we 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 also got open-minded enough to start looking at really unique sets of 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 of, of patients study participants etc which is giving us some, some some new insights into things as well yeah on the centenarian element then that the, these are people who live to over 100 years old yeah right? they were sampled in what they call these blue zones right where they're like just these are hot spots for people who just live really long was there also something to do with the fact that not only were they living long they were living healthy yeah yeah so they yeah. were like Living a really long and healthy life. Yeah. So, so, so to, to take that on, one aspect of this was, uh, as I think I mentioned, is we in that study there was some particular new bar, forms of bile acid that were identified, and then of course the theory, the whole premise of doing the study in the first place was, look, look, if these people have got to a hundred, they must have something in their constitution that is kind of yeah. pretty good, and that one of those things might be that they're considering when the era in which these people were were young were younger people which was pre-antibiotic maybe these people have got some pretty good defense against infectious disease you know and they started testing some of these new bile acids identified in the study against different forms of uh it, it, different forms of infection including some multi multi-drug resistant bugs some antibiotic resistance bugs including c difficile that we've we, you know we've mentioned before and some of these bile acids really just killed off those bugs really really effectively um wow uh so so that's so, cool so so you know again that kind of added weight to the kind of initial premise that you know maybe maybe that's part of the story why i mean there could be a whole range of other factors that are relevant uh, that are that are relevant including the genetics of these people the immune system of these people you know some luck in their upright you know that they you know whatever it is but they're um but there it there is obviously something and what drives that microbiome in the first place be that diet geography whatever it is right. that, that's also an area of debate but whatever it is the point is they had these bugs they've got those metabolites and they seem to at least part the story of that yep. might be that they've got this particular uh super microbiome that is wow. uh that, 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 that can is pretty potent against against pretty common infections wow. could one other aspect be there's other microbial metabolites or just the general composition of the microbiome promotes health in these people too have they done more analysis than just you know the bile acids like diversity was that yeah, higher so that's, uh, i can't remember about diversity specifically in fact they looked at kind of a, a number of different metabolites and for, for some metabolite groups including the short chain fatty acids there wasn't such a clear prominent pattern perhaps that is kind of a bit more you know, perhaps that, it, you know, there's kind of, you're looking at 100-year-olds, there's kind of a, one aspect might be, there's some aspects of when you look at a microbiome 100-year-old that is kind of a, 
uh, a plotted history of what's happened over the past hundred years. Other aspects, of what you look like, might be what their diet or their health is like now. So, so you right. kind of, you kind of might expect to see slightly different results in some in some you know metabolite groups, some microbiome aspects than you, you would others. So, I think actually for short chain fatty acids, I recall there wasn't such a clear signal, but for, for bile acids in particular, it's where they saw this really clear picture. So cool. So the BSU guidelines would prevent them from becoming a donor because they're over the age of 60. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the question then is, would they be a good donor if they're 100 yeah. and they're healthy? I, yeah, I, this, 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 this is a great debate. I mean, I, I think as one, one, one example that we, we, we've talked, spoken about before is, 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 you know, for, for instance, there is some interest in the microbiome in, in his contribution to alcohol dependence and yep. its relation to alcohol-related liver disease. And there's an increasing body of work showing the relevance of the microbiome to, 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 those, to those aspects. So the story there, Ben, is that they've got a different microbiome when you compare them to healthy people. Yeah. yeah. What about in, in animals? Like, is it harder to give people or animals alcoholic liver disease if they don't have a microbiome? There's some element to that as well. Yeah, exactly. There? Correct. So there is yeah. elements from that. They, sometimes it's there's some difficulty from 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 some animal models and that you know it's it's some animal models just just don't drink alcohol very well. But there are there are some some are some some right. there are some supportive supportive data from that aspect of a of a sort of microbiome related aspect both in terms of susceptibility to to alcohol related liver disease and um uh and uh, and 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 you know, your 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 appetite and your yeah. dependence on alcohol and there's been one study as well um from Jaj Bajaz um and uh I don't want to do him a disservice here but my understanding is that in a small pilot study in patients with alcoholic hepatitis they showed a reduced alcohol craving post FMT. Yeah, post, exactly. Reduced alcohol craving post post in, in so patients with alcohol related liver disease. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I, I mean, the microbiome in terms of addiction and 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 you know aspects of personality is 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 then getting into a a new field. But 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 just briefly come yes, back to that yeah. idea. Of, Let's of, us talk about that. Yeah. Of, of, of you know do donor. It. You know, say you wanted to design an FMT study for there. So that Jazz Bajaj study, as you say, was an FMT study yeah. where people seem to have reduced alcohol dependence after after the um after the procedure. But who do you who do you pick as your donor? This is something we've discussed and others have discussed. You know, would you just pick a healthy donor who's got a total aversion to alcohol? Or actually might you say, look, I will pick someone who's who who actually is a bit of a drinker, but actually ha, you know hasn't got any sort of alcohol-related liver disease, or or can just have a binge now and again, but just yep. can just drop it you know totally yep. between then, um you know Interesting. You, you know because because perhaps those sort of people you know they've got they've got the sort of constitution whereby they can take the alcohol, yeah. but it doesn't actually you know kind of they can shake it off or it doesn't cause them any harm or whatever, and and then you know say say there were even there was some sort of biological plausibility that that second scenario, you know the occasional heavy drinker was the yeah. tone you want to use, yeah, you know would that be kind of ethically right to to, to you know to pick that person, right? Um, well, even on the former, I mean, if somebody's been on the booze heavy every day for the last what shall we say ten years, yeah, okay. And I really mean heavy, but their liver function tests look good. Yeah. Um, rest of their parameters look good, healthy, exercising, so on and so on. They meet all the other criteria. Would there be any argument to say, 
oh hey, their microbiome might be protecting their liver yeah. from the from cirrhosis, for example. Yeah, and, I think, and I if think, so, could they be a good donor? I think I think plausibly you could you could kind of you know you can make that ma- case. make that make, yeah. make, make that case. Um, but but how how you go forward with that with the current level of knowledge you've got yeah. with the current safety and regulatory focus that that yeah. we we rightly have I, I i you know is 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 really difficult and i would have to say I, I, my view um and you've got a lot of experience in this area too is it might be so hard to actually find those people it's harder yeah. than you know it's yeah. hard because i don't even know where would where would you go you'd go to the the pub and yeah say we're doing i mean so that, that that sets the bar that sets the bar high there are other i mean there are other particular sorts of scenario whereby you might select a particular donor on a particular situation i mean for instance give one example to go back to that idea we discussed about a metabolic disease including things like obesity yes. and type 2 diabetes yes there's been some study again from max neudorp and colleagues in in the netherlands whereby they they took donors from 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 you know they looked for donors for people who've had bariatric surgery so in other words that we think we think part of the reason that particular bariatric procedures work in particularly the sort of more most extensive procedure real y gastric bypass we think part of the reason for the success of that based on mouse studies and some other work is is actually related to changes in the gut microbiome in other words you know that there might be that as you described before that additional energy harvest from our food that the you know the surgery might cause changes in bile acid flow other aspects of our health that cause changes in the microbiome and may cause changes in in energy harvest and they actually wow. perform procedures whereby they i don't think i think our ethical our ethics board might struggle a bit more with this where they used bariatric surgery recipients as kind of you know as as as, as, as donors, donors with some with some intriguing results and they've so, also i think uh as i said they, they they do have seemingly an ability to pick quite interesting donor groups yeah. you know the obese donor but also this post bariatric surgery yeah because i is there a hypothesis then ben that not only does the bariatric surgery change the anatomy it also changes the microbes and therefore they might have an effect yeah so if you if you if you take particular microbes from um uh, from from people that have had bariatric surgery, and you stick those into mice, particularly you stick those into obese mouse models. Those 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 bacteria can seem to engraft. Those bacteria can stick in the microbiome, and it can be associated with 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 weight loss in the mice. Uh, so based wow. on buoyed by the results of some of those style wow. of experiments, then kind of the idea has here. You know, could could your post bariatric surgery patient, but you know, be be some wow. sort of you know master donor but of course you know it asks, it asks all those questions again about what could be the off target you yeah. know uh, effects of that what could be the longer term results yeah. of that i mean one particular interesting aspect of that is when you look in the microbiome of people who've had bariatric surgery the gut microbiome you see it's particularly enrichment of a group of bacteria called enterobacteriaceae so that oh. is that yep. that is that is a that is a group of bacteria those, that are what we think of generally as bad guys. You know, if you see if you look at the microbiome of you or me, and we saw a lot of those sort of bacteria, we we we, we would probably think you know we're not going to be the greatest stool donors for C diff or whatever it is, right? Uh, you know, you think of those as as, as bad guys, which uh, you know just again kind of comes back to the complexity of these systems. That you know, in some cases, particular bacteria are beneficial; in other cases, they're 
not beneficial. It's not just what's there, but what's the function of these bugs as well. Yeah, and it's the and it's in the context of all the other stuff that's going on, the environment that they're that they're around mm. in the gut as well. Mm. Yeah. So let's move to your own experience in rational donor selection. Then, so what are you doing for some of your work at the moment? Are you implementing anything sophisticated to try and, I guess, in a sense. We're trying to enhance the probability of success, right? Yeah, yeah, sure, exactly. So, well, we're trying to enhance the probability of success, but kind of also just trying to almost take a step back to drill down more into this relationship between microbiome, metabolome, and, and those aspects of health. And it kind of gets back to that element like we talked with the obesity studies of maybe the bar is too high to think one FMT is going to make obesity go away. But actually, can we start to get smaller gains and start to see some of those signals? Mm. So for instance, we are interested in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So it's the most common form of chronic liver disease in the world, affects approximately one in three or one in four of the global population to a lesser or greater degree. Is that high, Ben? Depends on which which study you might want to look at. Goodness um, gracious. Is 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 increasing and in, in, in most so, Western populations will soon be the you know the the number one indication for liver transplantation. Whoa, so hold on a second. So so I think most people when they think of cirrhosis, they think of alcohol. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But what we're saying here now is that potentially one in three people <coughs> have non-alcoholic fatty changes yeah and then does that progress then over time in some people to cirrhosis yeah, and ultimately transplant correct yeah exactly so it's a proportion of people Whoa. which although we think of it as the minority of people the even the minority of a very large number is still a lot of people uh progress over time and that's so a tidal wave coming correct and that can progress to um and that can progress to exactly as you say cirrhosis the most advanced form of chronic liver disease and all the complications that come with that. And that can include liver failure. Yeah. And people with cirrhosis also have an increased risk of um of uh of, of liver tumors as well. Right. So yeah. Uh so so it's it, it's a pretty enormous is a it's a pretty pre, pretty enormous burden of disease, yeah. And um and, and part of my remit from a clinical perspective, so working as a sort of specialist um fatty liver clinic in my my, my hospital. The, the reason there is there there is some you, you, that can be a difficult experience is we don't currently have any uh, licensed medications for for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We don't have any specific medications. We we are we are good at trying to promote lifestyle advice. We are good at trying to control uh, comorbidities as as a way of also impacting upon disease. But we don't have any specific uh, treatments, even though there are, are I. Uh, an enormous amount of active research for a number of different pharmaceutical agents. It's important to add a number of different pharmaceutical agents have gone by the wayside, have had right. negative trolls or only shown modest benefits. Um, in liver? In, in, in to the, Yeah, for liver-related outcomes. But, but but that's part of the reason why microbiome aspects are, are, are you know, as soon as we started to realise there might be a microbiome contribution to this as there are for other metabolic diseases that's clearly why you know the kind of liver community and, and and you know doctors and scientists more generally have said look this is something we should we should really latch on to because even if there is a even if there is a chance that this this might be contributory you know we, we've got an enormous burden of pathology enormous burden of suffering people who we want to try and help it yeah um absolutely some of there have been some small small FMT, uh, there's been a number of different probiotics-related studies in fatty liver disease that are really somewhat difficult to interpret because they've been performed with 
different probiotics in different patient groups given for different amounts of time. Right. The overall conclusion, um, it's in the last nice guidelines, it's in some 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 other guidelines, it seems to be a modest benefit uh, across a number of different metrics, but it's it's difficult to interpret for those reasons. There've been about there've been a number of different studies of FMT in the field of metabolic disease, you know, metabolic syndrome, and yeah, two small studies in the field of, of of fatty liver disease that suggest some benefit, but not all patients benefiting to a, to a, to an equal degree. And some of those are kind of looking at proxy disease rather than actually looking at you know things that things that as liver doctors you you kind of put as as hard metrics. What what we are doing at the moment is we in taking this metabolic aspect is we looked at a huge amount of metabolic profiling of blood samples from uh, a huge biobank, so a huge bioresource that we have of people we look after with fatty liver disease, and particularly sort of more advanced people, so people with more advanced disease, people we see regularly in clinic. And we compared those to a healthy population. In fact, this was a huge study of um, uh, police officers where we where we, we weeded out the small number who, who, who had other medical conditions and kept in the sort of you know the, the 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 majority of them who, as you might expect, are, are are probably a little bit fitter than the general population. Right. And we looked at their metabolic profiles and how they separated, and which metabolites in their bloods were the ones that separated them. We then went back to a, a a group of donors that we'd screened, and we said, look, which of those seem to be highest in those metabolites that that we found more in the healthy population than our fatty liver population, uh, and we kind of make made a bit of a ranking of those now. Were, was the ranking of those people exactly the same as you would see clinically to look at them in terms of things we think of with metabolic health? You know, were all of them, were all of them, was it necessarily the one who was top was the thinnest or the youngest or the one who did the most half marathons or whatever it was? It, uh, there was there was clearly a trend towards their, their clinical health being related to their metabolic profile, but it wasn't absolutely a direct link between who our donors were and their, their metabolite profiles. And at the moment, the work that's underway is select. We, we, you know, as I said, we've ranked these donors. We're picking out the ones who are kind of top on their metabolic profile, wow. which we're saying, which we hope, which we expect, is to at least some degree a proxy of what their gut microbiome is doing. Sure. And we're using those as the donors for our for for patients with fatty liver disease. And what we're primarily looking for is to what extent can we transmit. That metabolic, that beneficial metabolic profile from our donors to our recipients uh, by trying to alter their gut microbiome. And we're using capsulized FMT, IMT products to try and do that. Yeah. And so that study's undergoing. Uh, it's too early to give you any, uh, any <laughs> sneak previews because it's, only, get, it's, yeah, only, it's, only, it's only in its early phages, stages. And we accept that it's an exploratory study. We don't think, you know, that, 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 that this is going to instantly wipe out uh NAFLD by itself but we we're hoping this will give us this this we're hoping we what we hope is this is kind of moving things onwards a bit and yeah. showing some proof of concept that maybe we can be a little bit smarter or biologically driven yep. in how we um in how we might select donors for yep. non-CTI studies I mean is there any argument Ben to say well look we're doing all this super extensive health questionnaire phenotypic screening to make sure that it's safe is there not by default some inference towards them having a particularly healthy metabolic profile as well? Surely, I mean, because we're doing yes. all this additional work. Yeah, exactly. So as 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 you know, we you know it we all it's very well established 
clinical factors, health factors that are associated with 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 the microbiome. Yeah. And and lots of those factors, as you say, right. are related to yeah, medication use like that, antibiotics, yep. age, um, uh, you know, other aspects of health, comorbidities, etc. So, you know, in the donor screening, we are we are, you know, there is clearly going to be an overlap between yeah. who makes it who makes the cut of your donor screening and who are the people in a population who would have a, a you know a good a good microbiome. Yep. You know, there might be other there might be a, 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 other things we haven't even thought about that the people who tend to kind of engage with FMT services might be people who are more health engaged in themselves. And so that might have some implications as well. Uh so there are um uh so 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 yes there is definitely a degree of overlap but can we should we say should we say sim should we should we say simply all the people make it through our screening well we filtered a lot of people who are probably not so healthy so yeah basically anyone's right uh we're hoping we can do something we a, could bit do a little bit more yeah 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 or maybe we could mix together microbiomes from different donors to yeah should we talk about that yeah the pooling sure. element yeah so, so it seems as though to me and i suppose just for the listener we're talking about mixing together the starting material from different donors to try and, I guess, do a number of things. Um, but particularly in terms of the product characteristics, increase diversity, improve compositional consistency, yeah. uniformity, um, so on. So uh, my understanding is that in ulcerative colitis now, there's, there seems to be some sort of inclination towards pooling may be beneficial based yeah. on the work that's been done. But in your opinion as like the expert um in the field is there any concrete evidence to say that pooling you know is the right thing to do you know are we getting there or okay so i mean i i'm i'm certainly aware of some microbiological data that's been presented whereby stool donors have been being been pulled and had a look at you know aspects that we consider you know proxies of a good microbiome including yep. diversity in other words the overall mixture of, of, yep. of bugs you've got in the mix and have shown that yeah you know as you might expect that actually mixing donors together gives you a a you know a, a greatly improved alpha alpha diversity you know it's one of the key metrics we looked at and uh and that in certain scenarios where we think that particular bacteria or particular groups of bacteria uh, might be you know important to 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 outcomes from say an fmt study uh if it's missing in one donor you're hoping if you might mix with a few donors it, you know it might be present in another donor and, and and make up the shortfall there and the same with you know metabolites or anything else related to the microbiome you, you, you want to look at so i've certainly seen some data in that regard whereby poorly donors together kind of kind of increases all those metrics so right. have we you, you, exactly as you say there has been this sort of pool donor uh ulcerative colitis trial where, where where the pooling looked to be a, a you know an interesting element that that might be associated with benefit i i think we're at too early a stage where we can say absolutely categorically that that one aspect of pooling or not pooling is 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 100 the right way to go for all situations but i think from from everything we've seen that pooling looks a really interesting you know way of doing it from a from the from the standpoint of biological rationale yeah 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 and um is this something you, you think we'll see more of as we move forward now because we've got the proof of concept and you see i mean intuitively i suppose if we're looking for bugs that have functionality there's more chances of shots on goal if we're pulling yeah yeah precisely i think that i think that's nicely summarized i mean another way of looking at it is when we have a look at a load of different conditions where we think the microbiome is important at its most at its very simplest one metric that seems to come out time and time again that associates with 
the worst form of that condition or poorer health or whatever yeah. it is, is a reduced alpha diversity. So in a, a field that we're interested in, you know, in, in, in relation to outcome after stem cell transplantation, I mentioned a little bit about that before. Yeah. When we look at patients, say, with, with, with blood cancers who are having stem cell transplantation, and we look at their microbiome, gut microbiome before they have the stem cell transplant. Yeah. This is almost like clear dichotomy by whereby people with oh. lower uh, diversity actually do worse, you know, wow. have, have, have worse outcomes. There was a big paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of years yeah. ago looking at this. So, so was diversity predictive of success? Yeah, precisely. So, so wow. a lower alpha diversity, um, uh, you know, seems to seems to predict poorer outcomes that people would have got worse outcomes. So. So, you know, by analogy of this, whereby, you know, alpha diversity alone seems to be a a uh, a metric that really seems to stick with predicting outcome, associating with worse disease, for lots of different disease types. You know, pooling at its most basic seems to be a really effective tool for increasing alpha diversity. Right. Alpha diversity has been linked with, in, in, you know, in, in graftment as well. So um, uh, this, you know, at its most simplest, that's why I think, you, you, you know, poorly might, you know, seems to be from a biological yeah. standpoint, at least, a really, a really interesting approach. Could be important. What Do we know why lower diversity has an impact on the success of stem cell transplants or is it very much this is emerging yeah i trying I, to understand i think it i think i think it's still emerging whether that's some proxy of missing particular bacteria from the gut microbiome or whether that's some more general proxy of different aspects of health i don't i don't know there has been some uh, you know a, a real growth of interest in the past few years about how the gut microbiome influences um immune function and obviously, these people with blood cancers, these are people having a, a you know an immune-related you know we've got a, a condition that primarily affects their you know their white cells, their immune system, and whether this is some sort of marker of uh, uh, that these people by having this lower diversity of bugs have some sort of lower stimulation or maturation signal to the immune system is 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 a kind of area of interest but wow. but it's still still a kind of it's still a, yeah pretty nascent phase are we able to talk about your experience in stem cell transplants with fmt yeah yep. yeah sure yeah so 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 where where this all started from um was we were i was referred to patient who had recurrent c difficile infection but also had a hematological cancer and was being considered for stem cell transplantation, which was thought to be a, a life-saving you know, treatment for him, the best treatment available. However, his hematologist also found that he was colonized with two um, antibiotic-resistant bacteria in his gut. And they had to, our hematologist had experience that for people like this, where they had undergone um, uh, stem cell transplantation in the past, that these people at very high risk of that bug not just sticking in his gut after stem cell, but merging from his gut passing into his circulation and making him septic, giving him an invasive infection after his stem cell transplant when his immune system's just at his lowest while he's waiting for the stem cell transplant to take hold. Right. And they've had experience of people who ends up in intensive care and even dying. And and and, and our hematologist said, look, we don't think we can give this guy a stem cell transplant because we've got no antibiotics. We've got very limited antibiotics to try and knock these bugs out if they pass into his circulation. And, uh, and we've got no other strategies. So, um, so we had a sort of case discussion. We patient was closely consulted that we hadn't done this. There were some initial concerns about this being an immunosuppressed patient, us giving them yeah. an FMT IMT. Yeah. So there was a whole. There were we actually consulted with MHRA as well for their standpoint on it. So, 
And the conclusion was, we after discussion with all involved parties, we thought the you know the 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 risks uh, the benefits yep. would outweigh the risk. While recognising there were cases to be made on both sides, we thought the the benefits outweighed the risk. And we we gave the patient a, 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 a an FMT IMT, and they went on uh, about two or three weeks later to have the stem cell transplant. So pre transplant, pre transplant, yeah. Yep. And what we found is that the, the these two anti, their C diff went. They didn't have any problems with diarrhea. The C diff disappeared from their guts, uh, consistent with our you know experience elsewhere. Yeah. But but the other real pleasant surprise was that the um these two antibiotic resistant bugs just disappeared from wow. the, the gut of this guy. Wow. Uh, we just couldn't detect them anymore. Um, so based on our, our experience for that, we went on to kind of treat other patients in the same scenarios. So like you say, pre-stem cell transplant um, uh, FMT, and we built this up to 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 about so and, and those so a group of hematology patients, um, and uh, and the and basically the patients did did very well. And particularly, I mean, firstly, our, our you know our primary question was. Are we going to stop these people getting invasive infection? Are we going to stop them getting antibiotic, you know, bloodstream infections with antibiotic resistant bugs? And we saw we definitely saw a, a fall off to what we might expect, or you know, compared to patients we've had in the past with these bugs, we definitely saw a in, in improvement in outcomes. Was every patient's experience exactly the same? No, there was variability. Some patients had to, did have some, some some complications. There was some variability, but overall, comparing the sort of patients we looked after historically, comparing to these patients, there was a clear, you know, benefit when we statistically analysed this and published this work as well. Very clear was a benefit. But then the other surprising element was not just related to the invasive infection, but how these patients did from a haematological aspect. So our haematologists started to say, look, these patients are kind of doing well, like really well. Like wow. their stem cell transplant seems to be kicking in, you know, working better. They, 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 you know, they're not having as many complications, and um, you know, unfortunately, given how severe some of these blood cancers are and how severely sick people with, with stem cell transplants are, we do, we do measure, you know, how do people, you know, how do people do, you know, do people die after stem cell transplant? Are people alive or not? And it was very clear that the people were, you, you know, that patients were doing really well. That they were, they were, the stem cell transplant was kicking in. They were living healthy lives. Incredible. You know? Were they uh, quite excited? Yeah, so yeah. They're, they're, they're very excited. Yeah, based on I mean, based on some of the results of this, we actually had some of our, um, you know, our, our, our renal physicians who look after patients with, um, with with renal transplantation and other complex aspects of renal disease or urological disease, come to us and say, "Hey, look, we you know we've heard you've had these good outcomes with these people with hospital with, gossip." Yeah, yeah. precisely. Yeah. With, uh, <laughs> with, 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 with you remember it well, James. With multi drug resistant <laughs> bugs, and and can we? Um, can, can, can we use FMT on on these patients? You know, these particularly patients who are getting recurrent urinary tract infections with with bugs that are very difficult to treat. And you may say, why give them an FMT if they've actually got an infection of the urinary tract? Well, lots of these urinary tract infections. The rationale is the bug is in the gut, yeah, and and then moves from the gut through to through to the bladder and the, and the, and, the, and the and the urinary tract system. And 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 we also started to see benefits there in terms of in terms wow. of fewer urinary tract infections with these bugs so again same same sort of experience did everything did did we have no patients having infection at all no were the overall was the pattern of people having fewer infections and when they did get infections they were easier to treat yes that's wow. what that's what we observed yeah this is incredible isn't it you know i think imagine going back in time to 2012 when you started to get interested in it and your future self said hey by the way ben 
this is what we're doing now you probably would have been like <laughs> no way we're giving them pre-stem cell transplantation we're decolonizing the gut of mdros yeah i mean well, again you it's know incredible. we talked we talked about you know starting starting fmt in the first place and see diff and well we yeah. sure it's going to work and what was the point where we really bought into this really works and again i remember going into this first patient for you know pre-stem yeah. cell transplant he was so immunosuppressed i had to have my full ppe on with my bag full of with my bag full of my you know my fecal transplant material and thinking this feels wrong you know yeah. here i am with an immunosuppressed <laughs> patient with my full ppe on. but yeah i'm you know i've, 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 I've got enormous yeah. quantities of bacteria i'm about to pump into them yeah i'm, I'm really unsure if we were doing the right thing but yeah. but but you know again that 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 um that that uh that pinch point came where it became it became hard to refute that there is something really clearly there so are you and your team now really strong in the conviction that imt fmt microbiome therapies are going to have an impact in cancer patients uh yes yeah i think i i i think we can say that pretty confidently and from different aspects one i think there's scenarios like 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 this and i think i think an area that's been of increasing excitement, you know, over the past couple of years is related, you know, kind of in the same category, but more broadly is can microbiota modulation impact in how anti-cancer therapies work? Yeah. And of course, where one area that's been a particular area of focus has been related to immunotherapy. Yeah. So immunotherapy is, is you know, by almost any standard, a wonder drug for for different forms of cancer in that these are used in really difficult to, often used in really difficult to treat cancers they're often very tragic cases for instance they might be young people with very advanced melanoma that spread to different organ systems but they use them for a wide variety of cancers and they're difficult to treat and these immunotherapies they they when they work they um they they can work really spectacularly for cancers that we had no treatment for before but we but what has become really interesting really quickly is this apparent relationship between our microbiome, in particular gut microbiome, and how effectively these cancers work. That again, you know, we didn't even know the gut microbiome was relevant for anything 10 or 20 years ago. And not only have we got here, you know, a, a drug that has come from nowhere that is brilliant for some people, has won the Nobel Prize, etc., but but now we've discovered that the gut microbiome is entirely irrelevant is is entirely relevant yeah. to how this drug functions or not. You know, you know, if, you know, for people who've got therapeutic nihilism about nothing, you know, nothing changes in medicine or it changes slowly, then, then this is the perfect poster boy, you know, antidote to that. Um, and um, you know, there is this profound aspect to the gut microbiome. You know, some, some colleague I work with, David Pinato, had has performed an analysis looking at people who'd had antibiotics prior to immunotherapy and found that, you know, people who might be, might be expected to, to live, to, to have an additional 18 months of life uh, with effective immunotherapy can be reduced to only three months of life if they've had antibiotics recently and the immunotherapy doesn't work. So wow. Really marked influence. Goodness me. That's oh, huge, isn't it? This is really, you know, profound wow. influence. Yeah. And, and then, you know, and, and, and you know, you, you, you'll be familiar with and that other people may be familiar that there's been these sort of two studies published already about looking at, you know, FMT to try and boost the response of, uh, of immunotherapy that looked, that looked really interesting. Again, kind of, you know, as we described before, is this every single patient did absolutely perfectly and did brilliantly? 
No. no. But did some patients really profoundly appear to yeah. you know benefit from it? Then, then, then clearly, and these are patients who have a very limited number of alternative therapeutic options. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I don't understand it as well as many people do, but my understanding is that there are various different types of response, like a complete response, yeah. partial response, so on. Um, and and there have been cases of complete response in non-responders post FMT IMT. Yeah, correct. Which correct. is, well, first of all, it's fascinating, but it, it really offers, I think, hope for patients and families battling yes, yeah. these horrific uh, diseases, which yeah. do take lives away very early. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and the, another really fascinating aspect is how this relates to the donor selection aspects that we discussed we, we discussed earlier. Yeah, for I've instance, got a note the, to talk about that. I'm, <coughs> yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad we've got there. <laughs> but, but for, you, you know, in, in both the studies that were kind of published together a, a, a year or two ago, uh, the donors for this were, were were cancer patients who'd been treated with immunotherapy who had responded very effectively, and it was their their, their poo that was collected and used. Yeah. Um, you know, in some ways, you know, it's kind of like our, our you know the scenario yeah. we, we suggest yeah. about the, the you know someone who's alcohol dependent yeah. but no liver you know liver disease. You know, in some ways, it makes perfect biological sense. Here's someone who responded to the drug. Yep. We know the drugs how the drug works is related to the microbiome. Surely they're the perfect person to use. Yeah. On the other hand. This is someone who got cancer in the first place, Indeed. and we don't know we don't know the pushes and pulls of why they got cancer. Indeed. And we might suspect that their microbiome could at least be some sort of contributor potentially to that. So, yeah. so, um, uh, so this is where we start to get into a very tricky yeah. sort of area. And I suppose it, with the toolkit that you're working with, you you and your team and others might be able to decipher what element of the responder microbiome is driving you know, the response in the yeah. patient. And therefore we can maybe look for that in a healthy person yeah, to reduce the risks yeah, elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, exactly. That's exactly what I think you guys are trying to do, isn't it, broadly speaking? Yeah, I, I, exactly. I, I think, I think you know, as we've said, are we saying that FMT is a, is a or IMT is a miracle cure for every single patient in every scenario? Of course we're not saying no, that. No. But when we start to look in non-seative surroundings, such as this immunotherapy example, such as other scenarios we talked about, like stem cell transplantation, recurrent urine tract infection, are there some people that seem to get clear clinical benefits? Then yes. And if we can start to say, look, you know, for those patients that got benefits, can we start to link that with they, those people got something, there was some aspect of the either the FMT they received or there's some aspects of their host microbiome to right. be with that, that might influence, you know, uh their response to the FMT, then then that is a that is a starting point. You know, myself and some of my other colleagues in the field say that, you know, you, you know, at the very least, FMT is 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 a really important exploratory Yep. technique for letting us you know delve more into the contribution yep. of microbiome to different conditions yeah discovery tool yeah is what i've heard of before so both a therapeutic intervention and discovery tool it's a great thing how is it going to evolve over the next five years then in your opinion another big question man i'm really getting you with the big yes ones. yes you are you are you're <laughs> hit, hit me with the, the, the big ones here james I, I i uh i think some of those are related to aspects that are i mean some things won't go away i mean i think donor aspects are yeah. you know donor screening etc is is not going to go away yeah. we, we are clearly segging towards uh aspects of preparation that are improved and while you know those aspects of preparing things in yep. in in a ambient air with a blend or whatever you know those are all ancient history 
it's on the way out, right? And, or or and is it out? Is it done now? I, I think I think it's, it's done. It's it's it's, it's on its last legs. <laughs> 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 and but but I, I think those 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 though you, you know those aspects of of having a standardized reproducible yeah. pipeline with very well phenotype characterized yeah. well screened donors is is going to be the yeah. bare minimum for where we're going for sure. The you know we 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 still do work with with FMT slurries other people using endoscopic approaches. There may be different uh, scenarios whereby you, you 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 know different modes of application might be appropriate, but clearly in terms of the technology we have, in terms of patient acceptability, in terms of our ability in some cases to target delivery to bits of the gut that we want to. Yeah. Different forms of cap, you know capsulized delivery is yeah. is, is evidently the, the way of the future. Are we going to stick with you know a, a, a perfectly uh, ideally made full FMT, or are we going to be move on to something next generation? Well, this is the podcast episode in itself, isn't yeah, it? This I mean, is the that, big one. That, that 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 is that is the big one. I mean, again, we we gave a sort of parallel of of you know blood transfusion before, and I, I, now I've heard a number of people talk and say, look, in the early days of blood transfusion, everyone said we're not going to be giving blood to people in years' time. We have just taken each individual element, we'll found out all the bits that work, we'll shove them all together. And we'll give that some fake blood and that will work and we don't have to take blood out of people the whole time. And obviously it's never happened because the the real deal, the full material is 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 clearly the best thing. Um, I know it's not a perfect analogy, but there is there is obviously some parallels. Um and and that might be where we are, that we say there is something about an entire gut ecosystem or there are aspects that we can't characterize you know like we said if we can't if we don't know all the bugs in there we don't know all the metabolites in there we've got an imperfect understanding of the functions we don't know which aspects of the environment are important 100%. maybe we're best sticking with the the real deal and sticking with the whole yeah. ecosystem yeah. but maybe there are scenarios where we say look we have moved on you know we, we accept that FMT or RMT is not risk-free. You know, we've spoken, I mean, we've spoken extensively about donor screening. Maybe there are at least certain scenarios where we say, look, we've used, we, we've, we've, we've used FMT as a discovery tool to find out particular bugs or particular metabolites or particular uh, proteins that bugs make that we want to, that we want to exploit and use as a novel target therapy. We already use, you know, we, we, we've already combed our way through nature, picking out new drugs, you know, picking out drugs for years, digoxin, etc. We've combed our way a little bit through bacteria and exploited some some drugs, streptokinase, aspirogenase, etc. But, you know, maybe we are at a sort of new field where we can say, look, we're actually going to exploit whole microbiomes for, yeah. what we, for the functions we can pull out and give those into novel targeted yeah. therapies. Yeah. It's worked when we've done it in plants. It's worked when we've when, we, when we've done it in yeah. for, you know, particular back, individual bacteria. Yeah. Maybe, 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 maybe we're just moving on to doing <clears throat> what we've done before, but in a whole community setting. Indeed, the cures might be living within us right now. They might all be in there in some way, in some shape or form. And some other people saw a paper published two days ago in Nature they'd mined the microbiome to try and find antimicrobial peptides and they generated a couple for Pseudomonas. Yeah. So indeed, I, I think there's this immense and vast treasure... What's it called? Treasure trove? Yeah, <laughs> treasure trove. Yeah. <laughs> Forgive me. Treasure trove of potentially therapeutically active compounds, chemicals, proteins in the gut. Yeah. And it sounds to me like and we and we you know we focused a lot of our discussion here on bacteria we haven't even really touched the surface of non-bacterial components Indeed. and of course there are a huge amount of research into bacteriophage the enormous number of viruses that actually live within the gut microbiome that live within bacteria there and where there's a huge amount of enthusiasm of exploiting the 
intrinsic properties of those viruses to mm -hmm. sometimes damage or kill bacteria. Um, and, you know, um, obviously, you know, we, we've got so, you know, embedded in, in, in other themes that we haven't even touched on the map, but there's yeah. these huge aspects of the microbiome, biology of the microbiome, where, you know, we, we, we've, we've really just, you know, to use a cliche, scratched the surface of, 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 of what we understand. Yeah. I'm sure you get people coming to you, patients, public, friends, family, saying things like, what do I need to do to improve my microbiome? Do I take probiotics? Yes or no? How do you respond to these kinds of questions at the moment based on what we know? Yeah, I, I, I say that, I, I generally say this is a really rapidly emerging field and we are still in the early days of it. There are clearly some, you, you know, as doctors, we are obliged to only advise people where there is evidence-based uh, scenarios. Is there some, you know, are we all convinced there being an evidence base for prebiotics in certain scenarios? Yes. Are there certain well-defined scenarios where we think probiotics, we've got trial data, they're beneficial? Yes, there are. But are there are a lot of areas at the moment where we think probiotics are maybe generally beneficial for health, but we don't have really specific uh, uh, data that there are, you know, have an evidence-based improvement for conditions? Um, yes, that's the scenario we're up to. For, for, for FMT, there are obviously defined indications and, of course, a really active research field. Do we know aspects that affect the microbiome generally that improve? Are we convinced the microbiome feeds into huge aspects of our health? Yes. Do we know aspects that we can, uh, the aspects that we can change in our lifestyle and otherwise that impact the microbiome? Do we all believe that the microbiome is a mediator in change, beneficial changes in lifestyle and impacts upon the health? I think we're, we're all pretty sold on that. Yes. But, um, uh, so on the one hand, that's that's a bit frustrating because I realise that sounds a bit vanilla uh, and and sounds a bit general. But I, I think I think we just have to say that, you know, we have some clear cut evidence base areas we know. Right. We are at the early part of a of 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 a of a of a big journey. And and, and it's clearly an area that's gonna rapidly expand and evolve. This vision of going to your doctor and getting your microbiome profiled. And then being able to say, right, I've had a look at this and based on everything else that we know about you, you need this probiotic and this prebiotic. Yeah. Are we there yet or? No, I don't, I don't, I don't think we are. I do, I do get a lot of emails about this where people have had, um, yes. uh, you, you know, have had uh, microbiome profiling or have had particular chemicals in their store analyzed or whatever. There are, there are different aspects of that that are a bit concerning to lots of clinicians. One is about the, the standards used to, to, to actually do the profile in the first place. These are not easy tests to necessarily do. They're technically demanding tests to do. The aspect, the other aspect is about who is the reference population. So some people say, look, my five-year-old child with autism, uh, I've had their stool profiled and they've, and you know, my, my, my child has this particular profile and the reference group, they say is the healthy population, you know, has this particular profile. We say, well, who is the reference population for all these you know, five, you know, healthy five-year-olds who's done this profile? So that's another aspect of it. And and then thirdly, most fundamentally, just just having higher levels or lower levels of one bug or a particular bug or particular chemicals at a snapshot and one moment in time without any wider context, <laughs> tell us tell tell us anything uh, valuable. Only an extremely limited number of cases, yep. I would say. Yeah. Is it fair to say that those limited cases, based on what we understand now, are 
if there's a pathogen in there. Or correct. Not. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Correct. Yeah. I think. I think. It's I think. A good I think, th- think that's I think that's essentially it. I, I, what may add, uh, you know, maybe of interest is there is a current current move for a for a, a whole group of global stakeholders, microbiologists, clinicians, etc., who are who are planning on. On trying to address this very topic, actually. Oh, really? What's that called? Uh, which Gianluca Yaniro and colleagues in, in in Italy are 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 leading, which are trying to bring together as kind of you know a global stakeholder group of experts from a sort of microbiome, microbiology, clinical medicine background to explore this very topic. Is there a role for these sort of tests for for individualized, personalized medicine, personal microbiome profiling tests? And if there is, what are those what are those scenarios, and what would be the expected standards reference ranges um uh clinical implications of, of of having those tests done so that 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 work is only at the stage of just getting a group of interested parties together at the moment amazing well i'll uh, be able to ask him about that when he comes yeah, on then i'm yeah. sure he'll have lots to say so this is great so we're moving in the right direction then essentially to be able to give people the answers they want because it must be in some respects quite distressing as a clinician when you've got a a desperate patient coming to you presenting this that they've paid for and you're saying well look you know it's it's not really yeah uh, you know. I, it comes back to what we s- s- discussed earlier about pe- desperate people saying well i want to do a diy fmt because yeah. i because i've you know i've yeah i've you know i'm uh, i've got i've run out of options or whatever and you know this is the really hard scenario as a clinician saying to people look i accept that you've tried you know a range of different uh things uh for um for, for looking into diagnosis or for treatment or and and you're really desperate because of the impact of the condition on your quality of life however you know you've always got to balance that against that doing stuff that doesn't have any sort of basis cre- you know you, you, we cannot as clinicians give people false hope you know we while we while we want to be go on a journey with our patients and yeah. give them hope for for treatments and the microbiome there is hope, an area though, where there, there is massive yes. hope because of the yes. because of the speed at which things are changing similarly Absolutely. we are doing a disservice if we if we recommend to people stuff that can do them harm or we give people false hope or we give them platitudes of things that we just don't think are going to work it's right. it's not it's not it's not a professional thing to do right it's not doing it's not being their advocate yeah, yeah. but what i think a recurring theme over the course of this conversation is that there's good reason to be hopeful oh some yeah precisely i think if there's the the the, the, the take-home message for this is that yeah there is there is a, a you know an uh an enormous amount of hope and there is enormous speed of progress um in so many domains i mean i think that perhaps you know reflecting on what we've discussed that scenario we mentioned of you know that maybe 10 or 15 years ago we didn't have immunotherapy as a treatment and we didn't know the microbiome really existed and now we know the microbiome is a major impact on your immunotherapy yeah. and these were and this is a condition you know before this you know these these both these aspects play into treatments that are absolutely life-changing and life-saving when you know and it didn't exist 15 years ago so so for for any for anyone who perceives there's a slow pace of change or hangs on to therapeutic nihilism then that that is the uh that that is a perfect counter to it amazing dr ben mullis thank you very much cheers thank you yeah thank you